All right, you guys, Revelation chapter 12 is where we'll be tonight. So you can open up your Bible to there. Had a, had a couple of weeks off with it being the end of the year, but we happen to be thinking of things tonight that normally we would think of at the time of the end of the year in December. So hopefully our hearts will be encouraged and our minds will we're just remind we're just on the topic that we have for us tonight. We have in our text tonight in Revelation 12, Christmas according to the book of Revelation. So before we get to that, though, I wanted to briefly provide some explanation because that's necessary when studying this book especially. Explanation of what's going on helps when you think of the story that's being communicated in Revelation because the nature of the visions that John is receiving and are complex in the way that they can be broken down into parts, and then sometimes they build off each other, and then sometimes there's a change of perspective or from a different angle. And now that we find ourselves in the 12th chapter, we find ourselves at one of those distinguishable sections in this book. G.K. Beale notes that for many, this chapter is referred to as the key to understanding Revelation. Chapter 12 is the beginning of the fourth minor section of the book, and it's also the second major division in it. And this division will take us all the way to the end of of the book, to chapter 22. And so from here on, we're going to start to see more details about the opponents of Christ and his church and and who it is that that the church must contend with in this present evil age, this age that we're living in, in between Jesus' first and second coming. We have uh, this red dragon that's going to be introduced, the beast, the beast out of the sea, the beast out of the earth, and there's people who will take the mark of the beast. And all of them stand in opposition to Christ and his church. And so we also can't forget what has come before we got to this section, the reality that Christ Jesus is the lamb slain who was worthy to open up that scroll back in chapter 5, showing us that he's sovereign and that he's ruling over all of the events that take place in this present evil age. He, is, um, he has instruction for his church all throughout this age, and he's orchestrating the judgments that come into this world, and he's using them all for his sovereign purposes in bringing about the end of the age where he'll come again and he'll usher in the eternal age, the new heavens and the new earth. And last time, a couple weeks back, when we finished the seven trumpet judgments, the seventh trumpet was that which one, which was about the, um, the coming of Jesus again, what we, what we call in, the, in theology the parousia. And there was these different responses to that event. For some people, it's going to be a time of joy, of blessing, of celebration for those who are united to Christ in faith. And then for those who aren't, it's a time of terror and pain for those who are not trusting and resting in Christ. But before all that, in the interlude to the sixth trumpet, we saw that there is this like double-edged pattern of Christian ministry in life, which is even apparent in the seventh trumpet, right? As we saw, there's two different responses to the events that are described in the seventh trumpet, uh, two different responses to the second coming of Christ. So if you remember back in the sixth trumpet, John was given a scroll to eat, just like Ezekiel was in his prophetic book. And for John, that scroll was both bitter and sweet. There's this dual aspect to the nature of Christian ministry. And it began in the Old Testament. Certainly, we see that with mercy and grace given to the nation of Israel. And that was often contrasted with the judgment and the wrath that was displayed on those who were outside of Israel. And then when we get to the New Testament, that two-natured two-edged sword of God's revelation is continued. So for example, Luke 2, 34 to 35, 
Uh, we read, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is to oppose, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. So it's for the rise and the fall of many in Israel, so the, and the, so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. There's that two-edged nature, for some bitter, for some sweet. Or you can think of like the two thieves on the cross where Jesus was crucified with. For one, grace and mercy. For the other, judgment and wrath. So these kinds of contrasts where the Christian ministry and the Christian life produces two kinds of responses is going to be seen at a number of different ways throughout this next major division. And they are existing in these visions that John is going to have or behind the visions that John is going to receive. And one other thing, uh, this fourth section deals with this, that deals with the red dragon goes into chapter 14. But there are many things that the Lord has to show us even here in these beginning verses. So we're just going to take it chunks at a time. And this first one tonight being just the first six verses in chapter 12. So let's read the text and then we'll pray. The reading of God's word, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, the great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head's head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. And cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. It ends the reading of God's holy, sufficient, and inspired word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for time to be in it, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us understanding, that we would understand this text as you intend us to, knowing that um, so many different opinions and observations come into play with this book, but we don't want to come at it with our own opinions, Lord. We ask that you would guide us into all truth and that you would be glorified in that. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. All right. So, we right away remember that this is not a typical type of book that's in the Bible. This is apocalyptic literature, and these things that are not to be read literally. They are picturing something. These things that he sees, they're representing something else, and we see that because it, it should be clear because it says these are some, a sign we read. They're, they're signs which represent something else. So John is being shown these things in light of what the Old Testament has already revealed to us, and that helps us to understand then the redemptive purposes God intended through the actual events that happened in the Old Testament time period. So we have this vision here in after John around 90 AD, and it is helping us to better understand what was happening behind the scenes in the events that actually took place in the Old Testament. So John sees this sign in heaven. Heaven's the scene. And he learns something here. He's being shown something in this vision. And the first sign introduces to us the first character in this drama, a woman. 
And first let me mention who this woman is not, because commentators tend to go in different directions here with this, and you may hear about them at some point. And those direct, different uh, conclusions about who this woman is will definitely change what we think about this text and what's happening in it. So if you remember at the time of writing this letter, John is at, he's exiled at the island called Patmos, and he's there because there's an emperor named Domitian who is basically started an emperor cult in which he's wanting to be worshipped. He wants people to call him Lord and God. And of course, Christians have a problem with that, and hence John is exiled for that. And some would say then that this vision that John is having here, it's that it's built off of a mixture of mythology and Old Testament narrative to essentially mock the Lord's enemies. That's not what I think it's actually about. Uh, Roman Catholics look at this text, and they see the woman as Mary. And sometimes in obscure ways, and other times in more clear ways, in the ways that they idolatrize Mary, um, they see this story of the woman being about Mary giving birth to Jesus. And of course, I do think that this is a, the, the child is Jesus, but we shouldn't think here that this woman is Mary, because both either Mary or mythology does damage to the signs that are given here and what they represent. So then, here at the start of this second half of John's apocalypse, who is this woman representing? Well, she's not a particular woman, like the Romanists assert, nor is she some sort of twist on popular, at that time, uh, mythology and the emperor cult. This radiant woman represents none other than true Israel, or the church in the Old and the New Testament periods. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, he notes that the scripture emphasizes the fact that the church in both dispensations is one. It is one chosen people in Christ. It is one tent, one vineyard, one family. Abraham is the father of all believers, whether they are circumcised or not. One olive tree, one elect race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, one beautiful bride, and its consummation, one new Jerusalem, whose gates bear the name of the twelve tribes, and whose foundation is inscribed whose foundations are inscribed with the name of the twelve apostles. So this woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head, the symbolism then we have to be discerning, but when we are, I think what we see is that she's picturing Israel, the chosen people of God. She's standing upon the revelation of reflected light and clothed with the New Testament revelation, which is like a sun shining in its strength. Uh, the 12 stars would be the 12 patriarchs or the tribes descended from them. The symbolism, really what we're seeing, is that of Joseph's dream back in Genesis chapter 37. You remember Joseph's dream, hopefully, the one that got him in trouble, the two that got him in trouble. Um, his brothers, these dreams caused his brothers to act with hatred for him, but we know that God meant it for good. And so in Genesis 37, 9 through 11, we read this. This is his second dream. It says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So his dad clearly understood the dream, right? He interprets it correctly. The sun and the moon being he and his wife and the stars 
being the brothers. They would all bow down to Joseph. And of course, that happened, didn't it? Um, Joseph was integral in God's plan to save Israel from famine and then through redemption from slavery. And so now the Lord uses this vision in Revelation to shed more light on what was happening in Genesis 37, kind of behind the scenes. We're seeing the divine author's intent of this text that was maybe unclear as it was happening, but now in the New Testament times, as John sees this vision, we're allowed to see more of what was actually happening behind the scenes and what it was foretelling. It was telling us something about Christ and the greater work of redemption that he would bring, redemption from sin and death. So the woman of Revelation who's clothed clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars represents in the first place the people of God under the Old Covenant. Right? We, we, we rightly see Isaac and his wife as being like the parents of Israel. Right? I mean, the 12 tribes came from them. And, so, and, and in that dream, they all bowed down to him. But in this way here, what we're seeing is that these 12, uh, the 12 stars, uh, they represent the people of God in the Old Covenant, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in that way, then, this woman is described in verse 2 as also being pregnant and about to give birth. So we're seeing imagery that is communicating God's glorious plan of redemption to us. That in other words, God is planning for the redemption of his people through Christ from the very beginning. From this early covenant, even with Abraham, we're seeing this clear picture. And it's even going to go before that as well. The child being none other than Christ coming in the flesh, the hope of Israel. Come at the right time, the time appointed by God. There are birth pains and an agony of giving birth. And we know that the 12 stars represent more than the 12 tribes as well, but also that of the apostles. If you think back just a couple chapters ago in Revelation, there were the 24 elders around the throne that symbolized the the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Well, here, what we have in just showing the one crown of 12 is the unity of God's plan of redemption being emphasized in the unity of the people of God across the covenants. And then in verse 3, we're given another sign in heaven. This one doesn't require as much discernment as the woman does. It's clear that since the woman is the church, in light of the covenant promises of God, that the red dragon is the enemy, the devil, and there are allusions to its power with its multiple heads and then its horns on its heads and the diadems as well. And we'll, we'll deal with those things later on in, the, in later texts. But remember, the section is larger as well. And verse 9 says that the dragon was that serpent of old, the devil or Satan, the serpent of old in the garden. And so in other words, this is not some apocalyptic monster that's going to come in the future to come and torment the people that are on the earth. But this red dragon is the one who has been here from the garden seeking to thwart God's plans and upset his people. And the devil is no laughing matter, you guys. We tend to make light of him in our culture, to make jokes, but this is the enemy of God and our enemy. And if you're ignorant of his devices, if you're ignorant of the ways in which he operates and does things, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he'll take advantage of you. And so you need to resist him. And the coming chapters are going to explain more detail about the way he works. But his aim that we see here in this text for tonight, this red dragon, 
has been from the curse on pronounced in the garden to upset the plan and purpose of God. And we'll see that in just a moment. Let's consider some more of the particulars in the passage. Verse four, this giant tail from the red dragon swoops down a third of the stars of heaven and casts them down to the earth. A couple of things we should see here, lining up with previous statements in Revelation. And and notice that this action of the tail coincides with the birth of the child, who is the Messiah, who is Christ Jesus, the one who's going to come with a rod to rule, we read. So there could be allusion here to those fallen angels who follow the devil. Uh, We know that it's more than just Satan who rebelled against God, right? There's other fallen angels that we would refer to as demons. And they are, we would look at them as being less than or under the authority of Satan. And so hence, you know, the tail which comes from the back of the dragon, they follow him and they're cast down to the earth. Which means, of course, that the birth of the child is happening on the earth. And so it's referring to the increased demonic activity that took place surrounding the birth and the life of Jesus. We understand that when we read the New Testament, it seems like there is much more demonic activity, people being possessed. That still, I think, does happen today. But it seems clear that it was happening with more frequency when Christ was on the earth doing his ministry. And in part, that's because Jesus is the light of the earth and the darkness is exposed because of him, but also because those things were happening in order to be used as signs that would testify to Jesus's deity and the fact that he was the Messiah. And so here we read in Revelation 12 that there is this casting down to the earth around the time of the birth of this child. This would also make sense with the trumpet judgments that explain the demonic activity on the earth between this age. We read about them in the earlier trumpet judgments, which, of course, you know, began at the birth of the child from the woman. So listen to the fourth trumpet description. This is Revelation 8.12. There it says, The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. So a third of their light may be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and so likewise a third of the night. There's the similarity that we see, the third happening, showing as well that it's not a total event that's taking place, and God is in control and limiting things. But verse 5 in Revelation 12, this dragon can't stop this plan, and the male child is born to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a quote from Psalm 2, which clearly refers to the Lord Christ. So Psalm 2, 7 through 9 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So it's speaking there of the father to the son. It says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So that's quoted in Revelation 12, that verse in chapter two of Psalm um, two, verse nine. So, and friends, we need to remember and understand that Jesus is ruling right now with that rod of iron. He's using it even. He's breaking the hard hearts of people so that when he saves us, that he may give them a heart of flesh, as well as it's a rod of judgment that is coming to bear upon those who aren't saved and who are also in view of this rod of iron. Christ is ruling in this manner now with this rod of iron, dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. We rejoice in that, and we look forward to his coming again when it will be complete. But then also notice verse 5. We note that he must indeed come again because he's left. 
he was caught up to the throne of God, we read. The, the devil, this dragon, he did not devour him like he intended to, right? So the son is, of this woman is caught up to the throne. And from there, um, we know that he is reigning at the right hand of the Father from elsewhere in Revelation and throughout Scripture as well. And he's living to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7 tells us. He's glorified and he's exalted. And that means that his people are not forsaken here upon the earth. Now, we have to know other parts of the Bible to understand that's what's being communicated here as well, but that is what this is talking about. Verse 6, the woman, so who we've said is, is the true Israel or the church, um, has fled into the wilderness. Remember what we've said about the wilderness already in Revelation, that it's parallel to the wilderness in Israel, Israel's uh, wanderings who came out of that wilderness to enter into Canaan, the promised land, which was a type of the new heavens and the new earth. And so this passage then is proclaiming that things that we've already seen, but now from a different angle, that, the, that once again, we're understanding that the church is enduring now, now through this and conquering through this period of great tribulation, which we are on our way through to the new heavens and the new earth. Because Christ has purchased that for us, and he has earned it for us. This place prepared by God for us. And remember, Christ is Lord over what happens in this age. He's, he's the one who's worthy to open the scroll. And Christ Jesus preserves his church in this age, and even the gates of hell won't prevail against it. When we read that God nourishes the woman, uh, the church, for that familiar number now, that 1,260 days. Do you remember that from last time? We talked about that in chapter 11 in the interlude. There was the 1,260 days. It was also broken down into two other um, figures as well. Well, it's that, it's that same number again, which we read about the ministry of the church with those two witnesses that began in this age, that they would witness for 1,260 days. And now this woman is nourished for 1,260 days. So what we see in Revelation 12 is not something new, but John is encouraging the churches by showing the cohesiveness of God's plan from a larger, redemptive, biblical, historical view. What we see here, again, is the story of Christmas according to Revelation. And I mean, next year you can encourage your families to put this passage on their Christmas card. It, okay, I can see it leading to a good conversation at least. But this is what that's talking about, the birth of Christ. But even larger than that, it puts the birth of Christ in the larger narrative of God's plan to redeem his people. And so this drama is going to unfold more in the coming verses as well. But for the remainder of our time, I want to consider the main section, which is God's redemptive plan in Christ, which we as the church today are a part of, and how it's always been opposed by the devil as the deceiver, who, and who's always looked to destroy the promised son, for all the way back to the Proto-Evangelium uh, back in Genesis 3. So we'll look at that in a second too. And so now when we think of it like this, we see that the entire Bible, and especially for us here now, that the scriptures are in fact one story. And we were talking about a few moments ago before the sermon started that the Old Testament has 39 different books in it. Well, really, it's all one story. Even though there's different books written over a couple thousand 
years, and even into the New Testament, it's all telling one story. The story of the conflict between the seed of the woman and the dragon, between Christ and Satan. And this conflict, Christ has victory, of course. And William Hendrickson, in his commentary, he's very helpful here. Um, What I'm hoping for you to see is, is the wisdom and the plan of God, the cohesiveness of it. And in seeing that, you'll seek to live a life more devoted to God as you see his plan at work and you become more satisfied and resting in the grace that Christ alone provides. So I think I have like nine different options or uh, stories to elaborate on to show this. So first off, where it begins. To understand the beginning, we need to look closer to the end first, uh, to the cross where the dragon's end was first confirmed. When, when our Lord was there on the cross, he said a number of phrases that were intended to let the church know what was happening in this act. And in John 19.30, he says a simple phrase, only three words in the English, it is finished. And in that statement, we should ask, well, well what is finished? He's on the cross and he says, it is finished. What was being finished? And the answer that we would deduce from Scripture is that the Son of God has completed His part in what we call the covenant of redemption. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all planned to redeem a people from the curse of sin and death. It's called the Pactum Salutis. We've mentioned that before. The Pact of Salvation. And the Son's part in that was to be incarnated and to to take on flesh and to submit Himself to the Father to the point of death on the cross. He lived a holy life. He lived a sinless life. And there, while he was on the cross, he took the penalty of sin that those who would believe deserve. And he satisfied God's wrath on that. He made propitiation. His work in the covenant of redemption and being our substitute on the cross was done. And so that's why he was able to say it is finished. And not only was it finished, We may even say that it sealed Satan's fate as well because the promise of the garden had come to pass. Which brings us to our next point, the promise that set forth the plan. Uh, Revelation 12 is clearly thinking in light of this promise. The same characters appear in both and the truth that was promised and fulfilled in summary here in Revelation 12 is first mentioned back in Genesis 3. The promise I'm speaking of is in verse 15. And there it's the curse. You're probably familiar with it. He says, I, he says he's saying this to the serpent, who we know is the devil, who we know is this red dragon, according to verse 12, or chapter 12. But in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent of Genesis 3, again, is the dragon of Revelation 12. And there's a woman there as well, um, Eve, who is the, you know, the mother of all living. And again, we see that soon in verse 9, explicitly, that this dragon is Satan. The woman's seed of Genesis 3, who will, whose son will rule with a rod of iron, in Revelation 12 is mentioned. That's her seed. And we know elsewhere from Galatians that the seed is Christ as well. So this is when the conflict and the promise is first announced. And then from there, uh, the next section is from Seth to the flood. As soon as the curse is pronounced, Adam and Eve are put out of the garden, but they're still expected to fulfill the dominion mandate, and they begin to form a family. They have children. There's Cain and Abel. 
are born to them, but Cain kills Abel, ultimately out of a hatred for God and for Abel's faithfulness. But then Seth is born. And does Satan realize that this son is the one who is predestined to be the family line on the way to Christ? I don't know for sure, but in Luke's genealogy, uh, Luke traces Jesus' birth to Seth. In Luke 3:38, we read the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And we have reason to think that Satan is aware of the Messiah, that he'll come from this line of Seth, as eventually he influences the sons of Seth to intermarry with the daughters of Cain, the sons of God and the daughters of men we read about in Genesis 6-4. And in that, Satan seeks to destroy Seth and his generation in order to prevent the coming Messiah. And the dragon seems to have a near victory in this attempt. Uh, If you remember what happens in Genesis 6, God sees that corruption is abounding all across the earth. There is nothing but wickedness in the hearts of man. Uh, the, The desires of man are all evil. And so much so the case that God determines to destroy the earth with a flood. Everything living on the earth is destroyed through a flood, but not completely. There's a remnant of grace. There's one that fears the Lord, Noah, and God saves this one family, and he keeps them safe in his ark, and he saves them through judgment. He saves them through the flood, just as Christ saves us through judgment by taking it upon himself. And the promise continues, from the flood then to Jacob. Once more, the dragon stands before the woman, ready to devour her child. Uh, But will he? Uh, The promise in the garden is now given to Abraham. Uh, God enters into a covenant with him, and he promises him a son. But years go by, and no son appears. Uh, Life goes on like that for them, and so they look to provide a son themselves, essentially a counterfeit. It seems like the dragon is winning, but then after much time has passed, God delivers at the right time a son, and Isaac is born. But even there, we see the battle dragged out further. Abraham is commissioned to kill his son, to offer him as a sacrifice. But of course, that would potentially give the dragon um, victory. And so God provides a substitute so that Isaac may live. And the promise from Abraham is continued to Isaac, not in Ishmael, the effort of Abraham and Rebekah, but in Isaac, the one who was promised from God. And then from Isaac, it moves to Jacob, who is later named Israel. And that's our next section, from Jacob to the Jews in the wilderness. Once more, the dragon stands ready to devour the child of the woman. By God's providence, Israel finds herself enslaved to Egypt, and the dragon takes another shot at the line of the Messiah of the promise. And so Pharaoh ends up decreeing that all the male children of Israel should be put to death. Surely, you know, this is going to work for the dragon. But God intervenes, and he spares Moses, and Moses even ends up growing up in the enemy's house, the household of Pharaoh. But Israel is still enslaved, and so God commissions this son who was saved to intercede. And through the mediation of Moses, God's people are redeemed from their slavery. And they're put out into the wilderness on the way to the promised land, which moves us along again from the Jews in the wilderness to David the king. The Jews, by grace, make it to Canaan, but they're met with opposition left and right. Much of that is from their own willful disobedience. And the woman 
is met with much opposition in this time, with woman being the church, but God continually has mercy on Israel and the dragon never fully succeeds. But then God determines to place a king that will be a man after his own heart, who will have a son that sits on the throne of God forever. This man is David, and he's unlikely. He's the youngest son and the smallest son of Jesse. But God does great things for this man, and he even protects him from the wrath of Saul. Remember, at two times, Saul attempts to take David's life with a spear. But both times, David is is spared. David escapes from Saul's presence. And again, the dragon is thwarted, and the story continues. Now from David to Queen Athaliah. Athaliah um, is the wicked daughter of wicked parents, Ahab and Jezebel. And she becomes the tool of the dragon to once again attempt a fatal blow against the promised seed of the woman. So this is 2 Kings 11, 1 through 3. And it says, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed the royal family. So the, the family line of David, she arose and she sought to destroy them. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. And so once again, God in his wonderful providence preserves the line. The dragon seems to get close Certainly even the dragon thinks he's winning, but through the apparent defeat he brings, God continues to bring victory. The next section, from Athaliah to King Ahaz. Israel's history now moves to the division within the Old Covenant people. Israel and Syria seek to combine forces against Judah, an attempt from within, just like there was an attempt from within with Saul against David. Judah, who is descended from David, who is of that royal seed and promised line, their plan of Israel and Syria is to set up a foreign king in, in Judah. To this man, the son of Tabeel, we read in Isaiah 6-7. And Ahaz ends up rejecting the help of the Lord, which would make the dragon think that his time has finally over, has come, he's finally overcome, and the curse that he received back in Genesis 3. But it is at this time that God announces a sign and a miracle that his plan and his purpose will continue. One will come from the line of David, and he'll be born of a virgin, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us, and God's purposes will stand. But even the promise of this miracle doesn't deter the dragon. He still continues to seek to devour the child and to torment the woman. And so we move from King Ahaz to Esther. The book of Esther is known as one of the finest pieces of storytelling ever to exist. And it's interesting because it doesn't mention the covenant name of God at all in in the book. Yet his handprint is all over it, and the providence of God is on display in the saving of his people. A wicked man named Haman, in the power of the dragon, is compelled to kill all of what remains of Israel. But God intervenes. And by using a virgin Jewish woman to enter into the king's potential wife pool, who she eventually becomes the king's wife, she becomes the queen, and then she's used of God to once again save Israel. And the story continues on from Esther to Bethlehem. The final leg of the journey 
brings us to the Christmas story, which Revelation 12 refers to. The promise of a virgin to be with child comes to pass. But even this is not enough to cause the dragon to quit. He sees one more opportunity to devour the woman's child. Revelation 12.4 said the dragon looks to devour the child now that he's been delivered, now that he's been born. And so Herod, if you remember, we read, out of fear of the promised king, issues a decree to have all of the male children under two put to death. But just like with Moses, God preserves this mediator who is greater than Moses. And how does God overcome the dragon here? He has the promised seed of the woman flee to Egypt, where he preserved his people out of so many years before. Matthew 2.13. So now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. That's the dread dragon seeking to devour the seed of the woman. And just another type of it. And from there, the promised seed of the woman goes to the cross where his heel is wounded, but he crushes the serpent's head, the dragon's head. All of that, friends, all of that is thought of in this drama of the dragon and the woman. God's plan of redemption in Christ is not an afterthought. It's not some plan on the go. Everything that happens in history, the history contained in the Bible, the biblical redemptive history, it happens according to the counsel of God's will. And that tells us that we could trust him no matter what is going on in our lives. He's working to preserve his people and he's never tired. He's never caught off guard. And he desires for us to look to him and to remember the gospel, remember the good news that this promised seed of the woman back in Genesis 3 has never been overcome by the enemy even though the enemies tried many, many, many times. But God ultimately has the victory, and that victory first began there on the cross, and we know that after the cross, Jesus rose to the right hand of God, and he's going to come again. We know the dragon won't win. It's a message of encouragement and joy for us, and God is sufficient. All praise and glory to him. Let's pray, and then we'll deal with any questions, if you have any. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to better understand your word and that you would help us to see it as one book, Lord. Help us to see your plan running throughout its pages, how your will is being done. And we pray that in that you would humble us and cause us to be all the more enamored with your holiness and your faithfulness and your great love, apart from which we know that none of us could be saved. So thank you for being the God that you are, and help us to see our great need for you always. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. All right, any questions? Kind of a lot to give you, but hopefully that made sense to you. No questions? All right.